This is Speaking Z Theology with Chris Green. Dr. Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, glad to be with you. I hope your summer has been going well. It has, I love summer. <laughs> you know, I love, I, I get depressed if there's too much sunshine and warmth. I, I am very much, <laughs> very much need the cold and the rain, but thankfully I live now in a place that rains pretty often, so I'm, I'm feeling right at home. My husband says something similar, but I just don't believe it. I can live in sunshine all the time. <laughs> and you're in Chicago, yes, Chicago land. Yes, yeah, so uh, lots of cold and, and gray skies uh, treat us every year. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're well known. I mean, if people are listening to my podcast, they know who you are. They've read you. But let's let's start with this question: How did you come to be a theologian? When did you know that's what you were called to do? Uh, college uh, discerned some sort of vague call to ministry, uh, partly through uh, spending my summers working at United Methodist Church camp, uh, teaching kids about about Jesus. Uh, headed off to seminary with said vague call, wasn't sure uh, quite what that would look like. Mm. Um, did my first uh, field education placement, preaching and and so on, uh, and felt like I discerned pretty strongly that that calling was to teaching and writing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not that I hated being there in the church, but um, <laughs> I, I, I'm someone who likes my desk uh, a lot, too. Yeah. Uh, so at that point, I headed things in, in that direction towards teaching and writing. Um, and I see it as in continuity with teaching kids about Jesus in church camp, except it's a little nerdier, which is good because I'm a nerd. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. So. Were you raised United Methodist or you just happened to be at that camp? All my life, United Methodist, yep. Um, my husband is a United Methodist pastor. We we met there at church camp, uh, cheesy as as the story can be. Oh. <laughs> you have four kids, am I right? And then a, a, a theologian, a feline theologian, right, in the house. See, Dwight, my theology cat, uh, four kids, yep. And uh, we have a pair of dogs, too, so it's a little insane around here. One of the things I want to talk about today is the the ways in which you've you've tackled some really thorny, controversial topics in your in your career. When were you? What was the first real theological problem you were drawn to? Was it a personal one? Was it was it one you recognized kind of culturally? And how did you come at it? Yeah, it had to do with theology of the body um, and just in general saying how important that is. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the problem problem uh, came to my attention as I was doing my graduate studies, uh, kind of from two directions, uh, from the direction of the classroom. Uh, I thought I knew Christianity pretty well, uh, but it was the stuff about the body uh, that was new to me and exciting mm -hmm. to me. Uh, yeah. kind of at every single turn. Um, and then from a personal direction, I was pregnant with our uh, first child and very aware of uh, my own embodiment uh, and uh, the worries that that brought starting a PhD program and that, uh, the joys that that brought uh, looking forward to becoming a mother. Um, so those two things sort of came together um, into a strong interest in the body that's what I wrote my first book about, um, uh, and it has remained an entrance ever since. There it is. Yeah. Yes, yes, this is Marks of His Wounds, Gender Politics, and Bodily Resurrection. This is not the first book of yours that I read, but it is yours, It is the first one that you published, yes? That's correct. It was my dissertation. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And what, tell us about that a bit. I mean, I, I can hear why you were drawn to it or almost you know, pulled into it. What surprised you when you were doing the research and the writing? I mean, what, what caught you off guard or pulled the rug out from under you? The sort of big picture thing that was surprising me uh, the more and more I learned was just how central the body is to every aspect um, of Christian faith and life, right? Uh, Incarnation is body, creation is body, resurrection uh, is body. Um, But I had just never noticed that it wasn't something that had been highlighted uh, in, in what I'd been taught. And then, of course, we live in a society that has all kinds of difficulties with embodiment. So um, that probably uh, added to uh, the not noticing. So mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing I, I wanted to say um, is bodies are good, right? Uh, God made them, God loves them, God has good purposes for them. Um, and then uh, as a woman, um, and at the time as a pregnant woman, uh, women's bodies are, are good. Um, God made them and loves them yeah. and has good purposes for them. Uh, a really important thing to say in a world that um, often says otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. I've taught like your book, Faithful, alongside Sarah Coakley's work and Natalie Carnes and Sean Copeland. So I, I plan to ask this question later, but I think I want to ask it now. How would you plot yourself kind of in that conversation with, with Coakley, Carnes' book on motherhood, where she's writing confessionally about her experience mm-hmm. of pregnancy? And Sean Copeland's work, which is not only about gender, but also about race. Where do you see your work in in that conversation? And, and anyone else that I should have been having my students read as well as, as those? Yeah, I, I don't know if I know how to plot myself there precisely. Uh, but all of those uh, writers are people who I admire, um, uh, from whom uh, I have learned. Uh, I first encountered Coakley uh, in graduate school as well, uh, and thought, this is what I want to do uh, in terms of um, writing about theology in a way that's uh, traditional, doctrinal, uh, and also notices that things like gender matter, right? Um, So I might not go through all that in exactly the same way Coakley uh, has, um, uh, but her her sort of existence um, has always been uh, a huge uh, encouragement uh, to me. Um, I teach John Copeland's book um, pretty often. Um, oh, what's it called now? Uh, flesh, is it In Flesh and in- Freedom? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, to help students think about um, uh, how important race uh, is to these conversations um, and uh, to help them see uh, the ways she has done that. Um, and Carnes's book, you know, um, uh, is so interesting. I, I've been moving a bit more um, into my own confessional writing, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a really important mode for theology. Um, so I, I don't know if that's applauding, but... Uh, no, no, that, that really helps. And I, I, yeah. Um, I certainly think, but I think that's helpful. And for those who haven't read, I mean, I do encourage, I mean, I, I think those are some of the important voices to be dialoguing with around, around these issues. Not the only ones, of course, but good places to start. I think uh, may I ask you about the teaching of these things, right? So you've written about them. Obviously, you've written books and all kinds of articles. You have a, a Substack, which we'll talk about, which is including some of the more confessional writing that you're 
you're talking about. What's it like to teach theology, specifically teach some of these harder, more controversial aspects of, well, at least the ways in which theology bears on controversial issues? Yeah, it's um, something that requires a lot of prayer, uh, but also involves uh, a lot of joy. Uh, I've mentioned a few times that I'm a desk person, an introvert, um, and so uh, teaching definitely calls me out of myself. Okay. Um, but once I'm in the classroom, I love it so much. I love my students so much, their persons and um, the way they bring themselves uh, to the problem. So uh, if we have doctrinal theology and controversial issues, um, I feel really solid about trying to teach them about the doctrinal theology and then asking them to make the connections uh, with the controversial issues. Mm-hmm. I think of teaching in lots of ways, but one of the ways um, is in trying to train my students' attention, right? to teach them uh, what to pay attention to. Um, and I think a solid knowledge of doctrine um, does that for us, right? It says, Pay attention. Um, are we are we remembering that Jesus is human? Uh, pay attention. Are we remembering that Jesus is God? Uh, and uh, I I often ask them to learn to uh, sort of um, uh, something they should just hone in on and, and note. Um, so I have to trust them to make the connections, and I learn from them all the time when they uh, talk to me about making uh, those connections. Uh, but I really believe the connections are personal and local um, in ways that mean that I don't think the way I myself make the connections is what I should be teaching to my mm-hmm. students. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the doctrine is, dare I say, uh, universal, <laughs> um, but um, the way the doctrine works in context is personal and local. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the way I've discerned my way through that is not going to be the right way uh, for, for all of my students. Um, that's good because God loves the personal and the local. Um, mm-hmm. and I try to help them navigate it. Um, yeah, you, you have an, an article I think I, can't, I think it's theologies for real life was the title of it in which you you made that point which I don't know surprised is the right word but I I found it more than interesting that you said you're careful not to teach your way of doing things as the right way of doing things in response to what the church has said about God or the embodiment of Jesus or the goodness of bodies and how, did is that something you knew by instinct or did you learn that learn it the hard way? I mean, what what kind of led you to that awareness that in some yeah. ways teaching is leaving room, right? Leaving room for them I to think, learn. Um, like so many things for all of us, it's a reaction to my own experience. Um, uh, I went to Duke uh, right around the turn of the century, do we call it that? Um, which was a wonderful, wonderful place to be. But a hallmark of Duke at that time, I think, was um, here's the way to apply theology everywhere. <laughs> uh, and uh, then leaving grad school and and navigating the local and the personal, uh, one either quickly learns that there isn't one way to apply theology everywhere, or one just becomes a kind of crashing bore. Um, uh, and so it's a reaction to that, right? Um, 
there are many things I valued about that education. Um, uh, this is the one right way to apply it was, was not um, one of them. Um, it's not that I won't tell students what I think and why. Um, I'm happy to say, here's how I would navigate this. And here's why I think that fits with, say, who Jesus is. Um, but uh, I just don't think it's my job um, to describe their neighborhood when I've never been to their neighborhood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your students. I mean, you teach at Northern now, but you've you've taught elsewhere. Who? What kind of students end up in front of you in in your classrooms? What are their concerns? What worlds do they move in? Are they largely people called to the pastorate? Professionals? I mean, what? Give us a, for those of us who don't move in the same circles. I mean, who are you teaching most of the time? For most of my career, I, I taught primarily Christian college undergraduates um, who uh, I loved and will always uh, love. Um, uh, I was feeling a strong pull to move to seminary teaching um, when I took the job at Northern Seminary. Um, and I have uh, really uh, enjoyed that change to teaching adults um, or slightly more experienced uh, adults. Uh, I think like at most seminaries, many of my students uh, are pastors or are called to the pastorate, um, but some of them have, um, like I did when I started seminary, a vague calling that they don't know what to do with. Um, some of them know perfectly well uh, that their calling is not a professional Christian calling, um, but um, nonetheless have felt called to uh, further theological education. Um, uh, one of the really interesting things about my students at Northern, um, and maybe this is a trend in seminaries across the country, I don't know, uh, is that many of them have been um, in ministry or in the pastorate for a while, maybe a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've come to get further education, not because they have to have it um, as an ordination credential, say, um, uh, because they're in free church traditions, right, where that that isn't a thing, uh, but just because they want it. Um, And those students are amazing. Uh, They're really amazing. Uh, They know their neighborhoods well. Uh, They they know Jesus well. They want to do the work and think think together, um, and they have a lot of wisdom um, to bring. So... um, Again, I also will always love undergraduates, um, uh, but a nice change with teaching uh, uh, more experienced adults is that they're less black and white. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, They know pain a little more or more of them do. um, And uh, that makes them better at listening to each other. um, And I think better at listening to the spirit um, uh, as well. Um, so maybe I was just getting old and um, needed to needed to shift to older older students, but uh, I I really love uh, being with people who are peers, right? Um, uh, in in most ways, uh, even if they might still be intimidated by theology professors. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of my own experience, I, I do I do think there are in my circles at least, are more and more students, and here I'm speaking specifically about graduate students, who are coming to seminary because they are they were never discipled in their local churches. Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up, I mean, I'm not that, not that old, I'm 46, but I grew up in a world, we went to church a lot, and there was Sunday school and Wednesday night Bible study, as well as Sunday services. 
and that meant for good or bad, like we were, we were being indoctrinated and formed and we were, we were being educated. Most of my students now, and again, I'm, I'm talking specifically about graduate students. I mean, they go to church once a week, maybe for an hour and a half, maybe they're, if they're being discipled, it's, it's online. It's a podcast, it's YouTube channel, a website, social media. And I've found that there are a lot of students who are drawn to seminary, again, not because they need it professionally, but because they recognize they need it personally, spiritually, probably a trend. I think that is a trend and it's a a crisis, I think, for the church in the U.S. uh, is actually uh, doing discipling. a lot of people who want more are just getting nothing but weak sauce right, from, yeah. from church. Um, and they want to know the Bible and they want to know, you know, just more, more about what it means to be uh, a Christian. Um, I, I think of one recent student who said, um, I'm here because I'm a mom and I want to uh, mm-hmm. teach my kids about the faith. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which would have been traditionally, that's precisely what local parish ministry is for. Right. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about how you came to this commitment that Christian doctrine is something to be lived, something to be lived out. I think it's because when I learned doctrine, it enlivened my life and faith so much, right? Um, uh, the stereotype is otherwise, right? That you go and you learn this sure. stuff and it um, it makes things dry and impersonal for you. But uh Theology brought me to prayer and service and worship um, and uh, lots and lots of other things uh, that have to do with my daily life. Um, And that has been my greatest joy, really, um, and one that that I want to share with students. Mm. Uh, Also, just from a practical sense, um, most students assume that theology is dry and has nothing to do with real life. And so uh, trying to persuade them otherwise is a way to try to get them to be interested. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, It helps that I'm convinced that it's actually true, right? Uh, But uh, students are going to be more interested if you say, I really think this matters uh, for your actual local, personal, embodied work uh, in your neighborhood. Um, And they see see that and get excited. I love that response. And I... I think this, my experience has been the same. I, mean, I, I can't, I know that's the stereotype. I run up against it all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That theology is, if not dangerous, it, it's either dangerous or superfluous, right? It's either something yeah. we, we probably shouldn't be doing or we don't really need to be doing. In in the circles that I've moved in, theology is is mostly seen to be unnecessary. Like if, you're, if your devotional life is sufficient, you don't need any of that. I mean, we, it's... It's a kind of anti-elitist suspicion about education, even theological education, maybe especially theological education. Indeed, but yeah. Is that is that similar in your in your circles or? I or think no? that's right. That's right. I I encounter a lot of that feeling. Yeah. I run up against that in all kinds of forms. This idea that theology isn't practical, but my my experience, much like yours, is exactly the opposite. I mean, what could possibly be more practical than the truth? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And maybe not practical in the sense that it, you know, um, helps you make more money or (laughs) helps you discipline your children to make them perfectly obedient. Right. Um, But uh, it it helps you live. Um, It lets you live uh, Mm. and uh, draws me daily 
closer to yeah, God. Well, and, and it's, I mean, to that distinction you just made, I mean, it's, it's practical. It's, it's eminently practical, but it might not be exploitable or useful in an economic sense. Yes, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's telling, right, that we collapse one into the other. Yeah, it's the greatest danger to education in this country right now, I think. Um, this idea that unless education adds dollars to your paycheck, it's it's useless. So. That's right. And to circle back on what we were just talking about, I think our local churches already lost that war. I mean, if it works, people show up, people give money to it. And we want to do what works. And so our churches, by and large, quit doing theological education, discipleship, spiritual formation, because it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And now our schools, which exist for that purpose, are stop, are starting to stop, are, are losing ways of doing it. And it's so also true that a fair amount of really bad theology, right, uh, mm-hmm. really has hurt people's souls. Um, and so uh, there's, a, I think, a, a wave of reaction against that um, that will take some time to overcome. Um, there has been a lot of failure on the side of theologians and schools to fulfill their responsibility. And so some of the, I mean, I don't think all of it's justified, but some of that blowback I think is, it's at least understandable. Like theology is work the church has to be doing for its prayers and its worship and its witness to be faithful. And if, if we lose that, you know, the, the consequences are immense. I, I'm sure we agree on that. Absolutely. Let's talk a bit about some of these harder topics that you've engaged. I want to start with hell. So recently I, I noticed on your Substack church blogmatics, which is such a great, I'm so, I'm so happy that you landed on that. That's wonderful. Is that a, is there a debt to Bart for you or is that just a happen of be a fun play? There is a debt to Bart though. Um, uh, it's not a, um, unrelenting debt. I don't know. Um, I, I, I love Bart in certain ways and, and not yeah. another. I'll probably always fundamentally be a Bardian in, in some ways. Um, and that has to do with my training, uh, at Duke as, as well. Um, uh, but mostly it's a fun play. Actually, um, I was soliciting names on Twitter and uh, someone offered that to me. So uh, I, gra- I gratefully took it. Yeah. Yeah. I like it a lot. So you wrote, and this was just a week ago or so, uh, maybe two, about about hell, kind of Q&A on hell. And at least at the time, it was the most widely read and shared piece that you had done. Talk to us a little bit about what provoked you to write that piece and how what the response has been. In some ways, I am a bit immoderate, sort of by personality. Like I tend to put my foot in my mouth um, uh, pretty easily, uh, especially if I just think we're all waiting for someone to say it, but but no one no one is saying the thing. Um, and the topic of hell is one. Um, I, I said this in the piece, actually, that I tend not to cover very much when I'm teaching um, because I don't think it's central um, to, uh, you know, the core of the Christian uh, faith. Um, but I uh, felt a pushback against that in how much the doctrine worries people, right? Yes. Um, uh, how much, uh, in fact, what people have been taught about hell um, convinces them that Christian faith uh, is immoral um, or 
uh, illegible. Um, and so I just sort of had this moment where I thought, um, if people need to think this through, then uh, I guess I'll write what I'm thinking uh, about it. Certainly for me as a kid, hell was much more fully realized than, mm-hmm. than heaven was. And even heaven was more of, so the rapture, the coming of God were, were as threatening to me as hell, right? Mm -hmm. Because the assumption was most of us are going to meet with that. I mean, my earliest, some of my earliest memories, my earliest remembered dreams are nightmares about the rapture, about being sent to hell and so on. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was incredibly charged for, Mm -hmm. for me. And many of my older students at least have some memory of that. Now, many of my younger students do not, right? Because at some point that went out of fashion. And it, I would say this is a smaller group, but a not in, not insignificant number of students who think that the doctrine of hell needs to be central because evangelism is. And, and hell is the, the motivating factor in evangelism, right? That we win souls so that people don't spend eternity in hell. Do you, do you run up against that or is it more is one of those groups much larger than the other for you? Yeah, I think I definitely see both. Um, But uh, in my circles, probably the first um, is bigger Mm -hmm. um, in that even if people have been to churches that don't really talk about hell, um, this cultural narrative is still there. Uh, That uh, you pray the Jesus prayer so that you go to heaven. And if you don't pray the Jesus prayer, you're going to hell eternally when you die. Right. Right. To be Um, consciously tormented. Right. (laughs) And then if you look for someone who wants to help you understand that they're likely to give you just that narrative, but, but heightened, right. Um, Mm -hmm. Because other people aren't, aren't talking uh, about it. Um, it's sad to me that uh, hell is understood to be needed for uh, evangelism um, because uh, that suggests that um, the gospel isn't good news for this life. It's only, it's only good news for the life to come. Uh, And the gospel is such good news for this life that uh, I hope that would be a motive for evangelism um, uh, in every way. Um, And, shape a kind of evangelism that's more beautiful and faithful than um do you know where you're going when you when you die die, yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. um so i think all that's there in the cultural narrative and maybe it depends on the young people but i i think even young people have it sort of floating around in their heads um even if they didn't go to a church that um preaches that sort of thing right oh absolutely i mean i have a 15 year old son you know, raised in my house, raised in churches that very much, I mean, we've only ever been in his life. We've only ever been in churches that I, I think are preaching a beautiful gospel. And yet, you know, occasionally he will say something to me about, are you sure about, about this? I mean, it's, it is a worry for him at some level. And yeah. I, I, I think it's, yeah. it's, it's a sticky as, as bad ideas almost always are. It, it tends to linger even long after it's been a dominant part of the conversation, right? Somehow it, like a bad smell, it just stays around. And we, we, we have a hard time shaking free for it. Part of what grieves me is that in, in my world, there are people who are, again, not many, but too many people who 
are drawn to the doctrine and yeah yep mm-hmm. you know find it as not just necessary but somehow i don't mean beautiful is not the right word but attractive like something that they that they want i mean i, I i've talked about this voyeuristically so right yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have yeah. to go there <laughs> yeah, no absolutely and I, it, in some ways i think it may, it comes down to something like if there is no eternal hell and if there is not conscious torment, then not only how do we motivate people to be saved, but why should I care about it? Right. It's, it's as if, and, and I think this is just in part the result of living in a broadly, but weakly Christianized culture, which people are not just poorly discipled, but often given caricatured versions of the faith. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're socialized right into a kind of quasi Christianity B- because of that. I, I think hell is kind of seen as a regulatory principle. Bad people end up here mm-hmm. and we need that regulatory principle or everything collapses. We need to know that there are bad things that we avoid. If you do those bad things, you suffer bad consequences. Mm-hmm. If you do the right things, you do them because you have the promise of reward and the, the threat of punishment. And without that kind of threat punishment paradigm, nothing makes sense for some people. And it fits very tightly with the hard to get rid of idea that Christianity is about good people getting good things and bad people getting bad things. Right. Um, When that's not the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and it's, I mean, the word you used beautiful, like that God is beautiful. And our, our draw to, to theology, to prayer, to worship, to obedience is this Jesus we love and who's loved us. I mean, that, that completely gets lost in, in those kinds of schemes. Um, your story about your son reminds me of, of another, I think as parents, um, I'm often surprised that my kids, you know, drag in weird stuff that's not from us, but I, we shouldn't be surprised. Culture matters, right? right. Um, so my, uh, middle school son didn't want to go to the youth group Halloween party. Uh, and his father was like, why, why? They're probably just going to say that uh, Halloween's bad, something about hell and Satan, blah, blah, blah. And my <laughs> husband said, you have gone trick or treating at our church every year since you were born. <laughs> yeah. What makes you think that? And he, the son went, oh, Yeah. <laughs> Right, but so, from somewhere, this yeah. this totally foreign to his own church experience uh, uh, paradigm had come in. So. Yeah, so that that's actually a good transition because just yesterday, my oldest, she's you know in from college right now for a few days, and then my boys, who are fifteen and nine, we're having a conversation. We we went to see the Mission Impossible movie, and we're leaving, talking about the ways in which the the violence played out. And so my, my oldest is raising the, this question and she was talking, engaging me about it. How to rightly represent women fighting in films and how that might bear on violence against women. So she's very much interested in that, those kinds there's of... That, there's a tough question, yeah. No, it's, it's great, it's great. So we're talking about it. And then my, my younger kids start to weigh in. And and I won't go into all the details, but one of the things that one of them said, I realized it, it he didn't get from us, didn't get from his mom or me or from our family 
the, the circles that we move in, the churches that we attend, and yet it's there. I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the work of theology and the theologian to confront some of those deeply embedded myths about gender roles, even for those of us, and you and I certainly are in this group, people who are traditionalists theologically, but don't want to be, I want to be careful here. I'm trying to choose the right word because well, I don't want to put it on you. The way that I've just, what I've said to my students is that I'm very much a traditionalist theologically, but I do not want to just accept the conventions that my society has held. So I'm not a conservative in that sense. I don't want to just conserve middle America, white patriarchal roles. And I think that the theological tradition is a challenge to that if we understand it rightly. So again, I don't want to impose what I'm doing on what you're doing, but at least I think there are resonances there. So talk a little bit about that, how the, the tradition, the doctrine of resurrection say, how the tradition helps us challenge some of those deeply embedded lies about male female difference and the roles that they should play accordingly. Yeah, uh, it's long been my conviction that um, the truth of Christian faith uh, is good for women. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, in fact, uh, works against uh, the ways that this sinful world uh, distorts. Uh, life for men and for women, right, um, uh, in ways that make it harder uh, for us to flourish, harder for us to uh, use our gifts and, and so on. Um, and you know, I think there's endless resources in the tradition for this, but one of the biggest um, is noticing the ways that sin um, is tied together with uh, sex and gender, maleness and femaleness. Um, if if you read Genesis 3, right, uh, which describes uh, the consequences of sin uh, in really tightly packed form, right, uh, each one of those consequences can be uh, folded out uh, to, to be understood in much bigger ways as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many things going on there that are about sin affecting uh, the right relationship between men and women, uh, the right um, ability of men and women to uh, live as humans who who bear the image of God. Um, just a few of those, right? Um, uh, before the fall into sin, um, uh, man and woman receive together uh, the the um, vocation uh, to yeah. be fruitful uh, and to have dominion. Uh, after sin, that sort of gets split apart, right? Oh. Fruitfulness for women, uh, dominion for men, and both are going to be rough, uh, right? Uh, and then you have um, her desire will be for her husband and he shall rule over her, right? Um, mm-hmm. A description of life in the world of sin, uh, yeah. a description of the way things are not supposed to be. Uh, and that right there asks us to pay attention, right? Uh, how are we thinking about our sex and genderedness um, in ways uh, that keep us uh, from loving each other well, from loving God well, from loving creation well, um, from uh, doing the good things, the good work that we're we're called uh, to do. And so sex and gender gets naturalized so much, right? Uh, As though we know what it means to be a man, as though we know what it means to be a woman. Um, And that right there uh, 
says it's not natural, actually, right? It's groaning under the weight of sin. Um, and scripture invites us to discern how it's being redeemed, right, in the spirit. Um, mm-hmm. you, you've talked recently about responses to Amy Peeler's book, The Gender of God. So let's, I think she's raising something vitally important. At, it's, it's important at multiple levels, right? She's, she's pointing out the ways in which we talk about God is, is in some ways a mirror of what we already believe to be true about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Mm-hmm. Again, I think this is a place where if we do doctrine well, if we, if we receive the tradition well, it is a challenge to what we think we know about ourselves, right? To what we think we know about what it means to be male or female. But let's let's talk a bit about her book in particular, and then some of the responses to it. I mean, the most egregious being being the TGC review. Um, I'll note that Amy is a, a good friend. Um, uh, I don't think that means that what I have to say about her work is any less reliable. Uh, but um, uh, it is uh, it is clothed in those those bonds of friendship um, and what's i think one of the extraordinary things about her book the gender of god um and i i don't mean this as an insult <laughs> is that it's not saying very much new at all yeah. right I, uh, it's saying what the tradition uh, yes. uh has always said um as a faithful reading of scripture um and that is that god is beyond other transcendent right and is not a boy or a girl um um or I think a they, right? Uh, it's somewhat trendy to say God is they, right? Uh, but that too is a gendered category these days. Um, and uh, God is beyond uh, all all gendered uh, categories. Um, uh, Dr. Peeler didn't make that up in some, you know, crazy new uh, vision. Uh, it's precisely what the church uh, fathers uh, said. Uh, and I think it's just what scripture teaches. So this really uncharitable review of her book, which was published um, at uh, the Gospel Coalition, um just ignored that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it claimed mm-hmm. that she was being uh, novel uh, in right. bad ways, and particularly feminist in bad ways. Now, I don't think feminist is bad in the way that reviewer clearly thinks yeah. uh, it, it is, um, but uh, you didn't have to get to to feminism in history, uh, to get uh, to the understanding that God is beyond and other and transcendent and neither male nor female, uh, or as I've heard Amy put it, uh, the father is not male, yeah. which is exactly right. Um, uh, nor is the spirit. Uh, the son is because of the incarnation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a stumbling block. Yeah. Uh, the fact that God could take on gender uh, puzzled early Christians uh, in ways that apparently are not puzzling to us uh, because we assume that God is a boy. Um mm-hmm. Uh, so often. So this really uncharitable review to me um, was a sign of the polarization we're in, the assumptions we make, the fact that um, uh, a publication might be published, uh, though it was not based in a good reading of the text or well argued, Mm -hmm. uh, all because of that kind of polarizations and set of assumptions. and uh, that's not good for conversation, right? It's not good for paying attention to each other or for God or paying attention to God. Um, and uh, it's certainly 
not good uh, for human relationships. Um, nice. This information is is public, or I wouldn't uh, bring no, it. No, sure. uh, right. Uh, what was most uncharitable about that review was that it came from uh, a coworker, right, uh, in the church, um, who chose to write this nasty review uh, rather than engaging his colleague face to face. I imagine, and this is me imagining. I don't know if it's true that he wanted to martyr himself, right, uh, to show how the evil feminist world would react uh, when he uh, boldly told the truth, but it wasn't the truth. Mm-hmm. Or, or bold, right? It's just just mean. And just mean, though. No, that's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's a sign, right, that we've lost or are losing at certain times that capacity for paying attention it causes us right to confuse meanness for boldness and cruelty for truth telling there's a larger symptom here and i mean i'm not despairing about it but it is it is grievous i think that some of it is driven by clicks right again it stuff works if it generates traffic if it creates conversation yep but also you do you you kind of earn point you get street cred right for saying the unpopular thing which of course is incredibly popular in your circles that's why you get credentialed for it right like nothing nothing is less courageous than saying something you know the people closest to you are going to applaud I, again i grieve that but i also want to think creatively about how to challenge it like how how do we talk you you've modeled that in, in in your Substack, how do we talk truthfully, generously, hospitably, in ways that are truly generating conversation? We need to be more creative about that. And that, that's going to arise out of prayer, out of, again, friendly collaboration. There's a part of me that wants to withdraw, like when I, when I run up against that, whether it's aimed at my work or not, my, my, my kind of first instinct, and some of this is because I'm and I'm a desk person too. My instinct is almost always to just wash my hands of it and step away. Like if that's how you want to engage, I don't want any part of it. But I, at least some of us can't do that, right? There has to we have to remain remain present. And I think, thankfully, you've you've done that. What's the response been, both in in terms of your readership? I know the the Substack is doing well. You have quite a few readers, thousands of readers. What's what are you hearing back from them, both about this, what you've said about hell, what you've said about the gender of God. You've written quite a bit. I know at least two articles on Paul and gender, Paul and sexual ethics. Like, What do you hear back from people? You know, I'm hesitant to say this in public, lest someone make sure it's not true. But I mostly hear positive feedback mm, uh, mm. from readers and, and from explicit comments and so on. I know that isn't true across the board, right? I know, I know there are critics. I know um, there are people who might read something and say, ah, this proves Beth Jones was never an evangelical to start with or uh, what have you, right? Um, But I've been blessedly spared most of that online. Uh, And uh, maybe that's partly because I try to address people with charity online. 
I also think there are people who you can't engage with and I don't try. Um, and yeah. uh, perhaps, perhaps that's a part of it um, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see the writing, you know, the public writing um, as an attempt to, you know, be helpful to people um, uh, to speak in ways uh, that will matter for, for folks. Um, and I'm grateful that, I at least sometimes hear that 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 has uh, been the case. So in our last couple of questions, I want to ask about, let me, let me ask you about the Paul and sexual ethics. For those who haven't read the piece yet, pieces, where, where do you think that leads? I mean, for those who are, again, let's bracket out the people who are culture warriors who already have their minds made up. Let's, let's, let's just focus on, on people who really are interested in the conversation. They want to be faithful to scripture. They want to, they want to be traditional in the right sense. They want to be faithful. Mm-hmm. How do we read what Paul says about the household codes? Like how do we read Paul? Well, right. In ways that are good news for women and that aren't, you know, using scripture to fit some agenda, some preconceived agenda. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a huge conversation, of course. Um, I believe in chastity and fidelity. Um, and I, I don't think Paul is ever going to lead us away from those things. Um, but he may lead us um, towards a lot more gentleness and kindness as we deal with all the ways that um, people are victimized and um, and are victimizers uh, in this world in relation to sexual ethics. Um, the main point I tried to make in, I think, that first piece about Paul and sexual ethics um, is that he himself is a flexible interpreter of scripture um, or of uh, the Jesus tradition um, uh, in terms of uh, needing to move from one community uh, to another, right? Um, so when Jesus is asked about divorce, um, uh, at least at one place, uh, he says, uh, you can't do it except in cases of, um, sexual immorality, Mm -hmm. Uh, a a term I read, um, as including a broad variety of sins against one spouse, um, against, uh, the one with whom one has, um, been made one flesh. Um, so Paul, uh, I think, uh, interprets that later to say um, that can include a spouse abandoning uh, another spouse. Jesus didn't say that explicitly, right? Yeah. Um, and many interpreters of Jesus have tried to make his own thing there as narrow as possible. Paul mm-hmm. says it's actually not narrow. It's broader than we thought because mm-hmm. here's here's a case where it clearly applies. Yeah, um, yeah. And Uh, I think then we want to learn from him how he's thinking it through. Um, It's to be in continuity with, right, what Jesus said um, and what's driving what Jesus says there, uh, which I try to um, say a little something about, uh, to be in continuity with that, but to be able to meet this new situation, right, um, with love and holiness and Mm -hmm. uh, pastoral uh, consideration. Um, and we continue to need to meet new situations uh, with love and holiness and pastoral considerations. And we continue to need to discern, you know, um, uh, for instance, uh, uh, when uh, does a marriage need to, to end um, for 
the health of um, uh, an injured spouse. Um, so I, I think my biggest reaction here is a sort of frustration with those who want to narrow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul uh, is quite willing to broaden Jesus uh, for good reason. And that last clause, right, for good reason, uh, is the one that we're always trying to figure out what is. Uh, and in learning it involves um, intimacy with scripture, um, uh, knowledge of the tradition, uh, knowledge of the actual people that you know and love and are, are, are trying to um, work with and for. Um, and we may not get the answers exactly right, um, but scripture asks us to open up to discernment and even uncertainty mm-hmm. over and against. We know the answer <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and we don't care about you uh, mm-hmm. as a person. So. Yeah. And and the, the long-term consequences, right, of that kind of depersonalizing enforcement of a yeah. reading of doctrine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's almost incalculable, like the damage that, well, I'd say it is incalculable, the damage that does long-term, right? When you when you dehumanize and depersonalize and enforce a particular reading. I mean, th- this is a, a constant point of conversation for me. Those who are most doctrinaire, most legalistic about doctrine, are invariably collapsing all of the tradition into their reading of a particular interpretation of a doctrine. And and so what you said about knowing to just read it in one doctrinaire way, right? So every doctrinaire way is going to be a chosen way. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that has, that bears on the real lives of, of our neighbors. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. Thank you for the work that you're doing. What's next for you? What, What are you writing now? What do you feel right, called to write next? Yeah, I'm finishing a short book for University Press called Why I Am Protestant, which I think is mm. going to be fun. Um, it's one I've wanted to read, write for a while. Uh, my doctoral advisor, who I love, uh, converted to Catholicism, um, uh, which was quite the thing to do amongst certain crowd for a while, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, finishing that book. Uh, I have a longer term uh, book about conversion, uh, theology of, um, and mm. how that relates to the way we think about relationship, really. Um, And uh, I love writing uh, publicly at Substack, being able to write what I what I feel like I want to uh, on a a given day. Um, So I I intend to continue putting uh, energy into that. Um, But I've also found one can't plan these things, right? Uh, You sort of you take what comes and you roll and um, see what happens. Well, Dr. Jones, thank you for this. I really, really appreciate it. I, of course, have links to your bio, links to your Substack in in the show notes. Would you Would you pray for us as we as we end today? I'd be happy to. Gracious God, Holy Father, uh, thank you for your mercy, your care, and love for us, uh, as shown in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, led by the Spirit. May you send that same Spirit among us uh, to help us to love and to discern uh, and to show your goodness and your beauty and your truth uh, to this world that you love. In Christ's name, amen.